Well, good evening, brothers and sisters. Lord bless you. We extend uh, Christian greetings to you. There's something about coming to the last and final service in a series like this that's uh, never real easy for me. I don't know why it is. It's just like um, you spend a week together and you feel like family. You feel like my people. I want to bless you for your faith. I want to bless you for your love. Your expression of your love for, for God has overflowed into our hearts. I want to bless you for that. I will leave here being strengthened in my own spirit, encouraged to press on in the work that God has called me to, uh, just as I hope that you will feel encouraged in your spirit to press on faithfulness to the work that God has called you to. So thank you for your love. Thank you for your, your generosity. Thank you, uh, Evan and Judith, for taking us into your home and caring for us, loving us, feeding us, sharing your lovely family with us. Thank you for those moments in family worship. Never, never, never let that slip through your fingers. Never lose that to the busyness of life. We were talking this morning in our time together about uh, being partakers of Christ, with Christ, in uh, his life, uh, in his sufferings, in his burial, in his resurrection. Someday, we know that we will be a partaker of him in his resurrection if we're faithful. One of the things that I want to emphasize here this evening by the grace of God is that God did not save us to get us out of our sins and into heaven. He saved us to equip us to continue the work of his son, Jesus Christ. He saved us to stamp his own image on your heart and my heart so that you can have the inner strength, more inner strength than what you need so that when someone bumps into you, what flows from your life is the same thing that flowed from Jesus' life. Virtue. And how is that possible? And tonight, I just want to encourage you by calling your hearts to Second Peter chapter 1. This letter Peter wrote from Rome, Peter is in prison. He had written 1 Peter, uh, I think that was also from Rome, and he had written it to uh, the, the church, and he was wanting to encourage them and to warn them about the dangers without. And here he writes again, and this time he's in prison, he's been sentenced to death, he goes on to say in later in chapter 1, we're not going to read that far, he goes on to say that the time of his departure is right at hand. He's, he's soon going to be led out there, and he's soon going to see that cross planted in the dirt, and he's going to request that they hang him upside down because he's not worthy to be, to be crucified like his Lord. And he will experience the prophecy that, that Jesus gave to him in John chapter 21 where he told him that when he is old, he will be carried to a place that he would not like to be carried to. 
and I understand that Peter died faithfully there. These are the words of a dying man. These are the words. This man knows that this is the last letter that he will pen before he gives his life for his Lord and Savior. And there's something powerful about the words of dying men, particularly the apostles. They write with fervency. They write with passion. They write with Holy Spirit inspiration. And so Peter is very, very concerned, and he gives here in chapter 1, he gives a very clear recipe for how we can be guaranteed successful in serving our Lord and Savior. How we can have how we can be guaranteed to be fruitful in bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And I don't know about you, but if I was going on a business venture and someone said, if you follow this business plan with precision, you will, we can guarantee you that you will be successful. Uh, that would be a pretty good deal. Most people that go into business don't have that kind of a guarantee. And, and that's not really so important. But when it comes to the Christian life, when it comes to our high calling, when you have a guarantee like that, we ought to sit up and pay attention and say, what does this brother have to say to us? And how can we actually experience all that Christ wants us to experience in being prepared for the work of the ministry? Paul is, uh, Peter is actually calling us to be quickened together with Christ, and he's calling this to the forefront of our minds. You know, we constantly have to be reminded, and Peter understands that, and so he's reminding the church. Down in the basement the other evening, Ellis came to me and asked me if I knew, if I knew, if I knew, if I knew, and he could not remember the name. And he walked away, walked to the front of the basement there a bit, and he turned around and came back. He said, I wondered if you knew, and now I can't remember the name, but he had it in his mind. It was just back there somewhere, and he thought about it a couple times, and it came right to the forefront of his mind. Evan helped you, so it was in Evan's mind. He helped you. That's good. That's what we do as Christians. We help each other. Bring important things to the forefront of our mind. And that's the idea of being quickened, is that we know these things, but these things have kind of like drifted into the back of our mind. They're not at the front of our mind, stirring us in our passion to love God as we ought to. And so we come together like this for meetings so that we can become quickened. We can bring those important things to the front of our minds, and it stirs us to a renewed commitment because we need to renew and renew and renew and renew and renew and renew our commitment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and to love each other just as we have been loved by God. And so why do you get together? You, you all just had communion here the, the other week, I understand, maybe a week ago. Why do you do that? It is to call to remembrance, to bring to the forefront of our mind again and again and again the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's one thing. The other thing is that it shows forth his death and the reality that he is coming again to all those who witness our faithfulness in these things. It is constantly putting on display this great reality that we believe that God will one day judge the earth in righteousness. We believe that. Therefore, we pursue the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. It calls us to this great privilege that we have in being partakers with him in this great salvation, this great invitation that has come to us to come and to be one with him. It is, it is calling to mind the power of one. What is the power of one? Well, the power of one is this, is that you cannot divide one and still have a whole. You can't do it. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. 
And therein lies their strength. You cannot separate them. They're so intertwined. They're, they're, they're the same. But they have different ministries, but they're so much the same that they're all one. And Jesus' prayer for us, just before he gave his life for our redemption, was that we might be one, just like he and the Father are one. And for some reason, we don't uh, too often call that to the forefront of our mind and make it our passion, do we? But therein is the power of the church, is when we come together around Christ and we're one with him and we're one with each other around the truth that he is, not our truth, not our ideology, but his truth. And we come around his truth and we bow our hearts to his truth. And in that, it's the only way we can come into a unity with Christ whereby we have power in our lives together as a body of Christ. We're not going to have time here this evening to look at all the great truths that are in this passage. And so bear with me as I, as I try to sort through some of these scriptures and bring out some things that just burn them in my heart. Let, let's, read, um, let's read the first 12 verses. And notice how Peter says he wants to bring us into remembrance of these things. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained light, precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of, his, of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and, and to brotherly kindness charity, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall ne neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into, everlast, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, that, and be established in this present truth. I just want to call our attention to the fact we're probably not going to get to the end of this passage here in our um, exegesis of the scripture, but I want to point out to you that what Peter is saying is that if we constantly call these truths to our remembrance, to remembrance, we call them to the forefront of our mind, we stir our passions with the truths regarding Christ Jesus, that there is guaranteed going to be fruit in our lives and there is guaranteed going to be an entrance opened up to us at the end of our lives here on earth. And if you study that in the original Hebrew or Greek, it gives this connotation of, you see it in Revelation, when the church is brought into the very presence of the King of Kings with great 
festivity, with great music. There is, it's like this is a tremendous celebration that nobody wants to miss. I promise you, you do not want to miss it. And then he gives us a way that we can be sure that we will be there and be a part of that celebration. And that's what we want to look at tonight. And so in the first uh, four verses, it basically talks, Peter's basically making an introduction to, of himself, who this is. He's, he's taking credit for writing this. And in the first four verses, he talks about what God has done for us. The exceeding great gift of salvation that has come to us and all that that entails. And in verse 5 and, and forward, he talks about our responsibility, what we must do as followers of Jesus if we want to experience virtue, the power of God made real in our lives. And so one of the first things that we know is Simon Peter, he says, first of all, I am a servant. That's Peter wants to be known as a servant. It, it just illustrates his heart of humility. I'm a servant. And I just want to encourage all of you to cultivate that. I want to cultivate that in my heart. I am first and foremost, foremost I am a servant. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm his servant. I'm not my own. I do not belong to myself. I have no right to my life. I am his servant. And he goes on to say, to authenticate this, this letter, he says, I'm also an apostle. And he says that he's writing to those that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now there we have it again, that concept of being a partaker into the like precious faith. The faith that was ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ. He says we are partakers of that. We talked this morning about how that we are one in that we have all drunk, we have all drank from that Spiritual rock, Christ Jesus. That's what brings us, brings life to us. That, that's what brings unity to us, is the truth that he is. And as we drink of that truth that he is, we find ourselves becoming partakers of that truth. We find ourselves coming into that oneness that he is. He goes on to say in verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And so who doesn't want to experience the grace of God? What is the grace of God? The grace of God is that divine influence of God upon the heart of man. It's the divine influence of God's spirit that calls you. We cannot come to God except he draw us. And we know that his will is that none should perish. And so he draws men to himself. He's the one who has given you that eternal spirit. And he gives that thirst within your eternal spirit to want to know him and to want to know that everything is okay between you and God. That's God's divine influence upon your life. What's more than that, when you respond to his spirit and you come to him in faith, his spirit gives you the power to continue to walk as a Christian, and to continue to hear his voice and to continue to respond in obedience. And he's saying, I want... I want that grace, and I want the peace that comes from having the sin removed from your life, and everything is now clear in your relationship with God. I want the peace that comes as you learn to rest in the salvation that is yours, as you learn to wash your mind with the truth regarding his forgiveness towards you, that it is abundant, it is total, it is complete. There's a tremendous peace comes into your heart. 
And I just want to say, particularly to young people here tonight, if you wrestle with whether or not you're saved and you wrestle with assurance of salvation, I just want to say to you, it's not a bad thing to wrestle with those things. It's okay to examine your faith, to make sure that you are indeed in the true faith. But you need to wrestle with it and wrestle with it with your ministry until you come to a deep, deep rest, a deep grace rest in your heart that it's God's great grace to you. It's not in your performance. It's not in your works. Your works will flow out of a heart of love. It is a deep need in your heart to become established in this truth that God is able to save you. He's able to save to the utmost anyone and everyone who comes to him in faith. You need that assurance in your heart, in your life. But he says that we continue to grow in this grace and we continue to grow in this peace. And how does it happen? It happens through growing in our knowledge of God and in growing in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So it's not just knowing about God, and this is actually talking about knowing about God. There, there are several different words here in the Greek that are used for knowledge. Um, I think this one is something like epignosis, which means to actually understand the truths regarding God, who he is, and his love for mankind, for his creation, who he is in terms of, of his create, creative power and his redemptive power, who Jesus Christ is, in terms of being the Son of God, and in terms of giving his life for you and raising again from the dead. You need to know these things. Epignosis. It's important to understand that. And then we go on to verse 3. According as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. And what, what Paul was, or Peter is saying here is, look, as you look around, you see the beauty of the creation of our world. I just am amazed at the, at the beauty of your area here. Just enjoy driving around. Evan and I went for a short visit this afternoon after, at the, after the fellowship meal, and then we took a little detour, and just the grandeur of the mountains and all the trees that are blooming right now, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But what Peter is saying is, look, his divine power, his divine power has given you everything you need to experience what? Life in Christ and godliness in your life. He's given you everything that you need. And how does that come to us? It comes to us through a growing knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Okay, what does that mean that he has called us to glory and virtue? Well, what this means is this, is that as we gain a knowledge of God, of his glory and of his virtue, we gain a knowledge of that. We are always proclaiming his glory and his virtue. That's what that means. If you study it in the original, that's what it means. You grow in knowledge of how wonderful God is. You grow in knowledge of his virtue, and then you proclaim it. The, the, um, the, the word glory is... Um, Doxa. Did you ever hear of the doxology? Okay, the proclamation. The proclamation of God's glory and how great and marvelous he is and how loving he has been to us. And so this is calling us to live in this uh, constant state of singing hymns and songs and praises 
giving testimony to our families, giving testimony before the church, giving testimony before the world of the glory of God. What an amazing God we serve. Not so many months ago in our little fellowship there in Morgan County, I, I said to the brothers at our prayer meeting, brothers and sisters, I said, okay, so the first part of this prayer meeting, the only thing that we're going to do in our prayer time is we're going to declare the glory of God. We're going to kneel. And together, we're going to just share from our hearts a thanksgiving and a praise and pray back to God the truth concerning his character, the truth concerning the depth of his love in our limited way that we understand it. And that was a powerful time together as a church. Several brothers came to me later and said that was so refreshing to just take our focus off of our needs, the needs of those around us, and to declare the glory of God. And I think that we can learn so much from uh, the exhortation throughout the scriptures for us to be a people who are joyfully declaring, singing even before we face the battle. As Jehoshaphat did, we, we call our hearts to sing and to praise God for his goodness, for his glory. So we declare the holiness of God. And what that does is it, it fixes our hearts on Jesus, on his glory, keeping our eye on the author and the finisher of our faith and his response to the suffering that he was called to go through. Um, the, what does the word virtue mean? There, the last word in that, in that, in verse three, is talking about the virtue of Jesus. What does, what does the word virtue mean? I would like to offer this as a, as a definition. If you look it up yourself, this is what you will find. Something like this. It has to do with moral excellence. All right? Virtue. Does that make sense? Virtue, moral excellence. Uh, that's what you'll find if you look it up, at least in the dictionary that I looked in, which I think was the old um, uh, Webster Dictionary, Noah Webster Dictionary. Moral excellence. In the Greek, it would give that same, that same thing, the inner strength, the inner power within one. And, and what, what our brother Ellis read in the opening was that Jesus had um, moral excellence. He had virtue within him. And where did that come from? Who's the source of moral excellence? God himself, is it not? God is the one who gives us that inner strength, that strength in the inner man to be on fire for God, to love God, to love God more than we love ourselves. Jesus was absolutely committed to doing his Father's will. The testimony is of Jesus that he delighted to do his Father's will. And that gave him that moral excellence within himself to be faithful in his suffering. We notice in verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great. And that, that word there is um, it, it's like magnificent, like incredibly huge. It is through Christ. That's what we've been talking about, the glory and virtue of Christ. And through the glory and virtue of Christ, God the Father has given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. And that these promises, by these promises, by taking these promises and writing them on your belief window, just constantly claiming them by faith. And when you forget, you put them back up there, as we said this morning. You, you claim those promises. You rest in those promises. You take all your anxieties captive, and you say, I believe the promises of God. 
I believe he's bigger than this mountain that I'm facing. I'm going to rest in the promises that he has given to me. It is through Christ that these promises have been made real to us. And we realize those promises only through the Lord Jesus Christ in our faith in him. And what he says here is, is what I really want to just call our hearts to to rest in here for the rest of the time that we have together. That by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Now, this is something I really like about that thought. Partakers. We've been talking about being partakers. Partakers of the divine nature. Whose divine nature are we talking about? We're talking about the divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was, the, what was the divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ? How was it just described to us in verse 3? Glory and virtue. The glory is, is his holiness. It's, it's like his sinlessness. And if, if you put us up beside Jesus and you go, wow. And that is the mirror that we're supposed to be looking into. And we only see it through a glass darkly because his glory is so bright, it would blind you if you could see it all at one time. In his grace, he only allows you to see it in a measure. As you grow, you see more and more. And that's what he means by growing in knowledge. But it is his glory. And it is his inner strength, his absolute passion for righteousness. His passion to be obedient to his Father. It's his glory and his virtue. And as we focus on that, as we draw near to him and experience that in our own lives, we are able to become partakers of that glory and partakers of that virtue. Having escaped the corruption, the corruption. And I think, and it's been a while since I looked this up, but I think the corruption is like the default setting. You got that? What did we say this morning? We were partakers of the first Adam and his nature. That is the default setting. That is the default setting that we tend to keep falling back to and going back to. And that's why we must continue to call to the front of our mind these great truths and have our hearts quickened to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. Having escaped the corruption, the default setting, it is in the world and it manifests itself through lustful attitude, lustful spirit, lustful desires. Now, we don't have to look far around us in the world and we see that the world is in a bad way. Why? Because men and women are following their own desires. They want what they want. And there's a spirit of pleasure that is rampant in our country today. People want an easy life. They want what makes them feel good. They want what tickles their sensations. And you, you, you don't have to go far to, to find it right in your own heart. Uh, people move from one church to another because um, it just feels better over here. Um, it does more for me. This church meets my needs better than the church I used to be a part of. It's a spirit of pleasure. It's not just in the world. It's in every heart of every individual. 
It's the default setting. And what we see when we look at Jesus is that he um, is full of glory and virtue. His nature is just like the nature of his father. So much so that he says, if you see me, you've seen the father. And so what does that look like? The glory of God. The, the nature of God, the very nature of God. What is, what is uh, let's, just, let's just have you tell me, what is like the number one nature? What comes to your mind when I say, what is God's nature like? Peace. Peace. Thank you, brother. That's good. That's, that's good. Give me another one. God is... Thank you, brother. Loving. That was actually the one I'm looking for. Peace is, is, is very good. If you were to, to summarize God, God is love. God so loved the world. I gave you a definition the other day on love, and I'm going to give it to you again. Devoting one's life to the well-being of another regardless of the response or the cost. Devoting one's life and resources to the well-being of another regardless of of the response or the cost. That's agape love. And if you distill down our God, there's two things that come to my mind. One is he's a righteous God. No, no, he is holy. No sin whatsoever. And second, he is a God of love. And while he is righteous, he chose to respond to us in love. And the only way he could still be a righteous God and respond to unrighteous man is to take upon himself our sin. And he did that in his son Jesus, who became the sacrificial lamb, who laid down his life that we might have life. He paid our penalty. He is, he is, it's the only way that God can be righteous and justify unrighteous man. And that should really humble our hearts deeply. That God is love. And God has devoted his life, his resources, the very best that he had for our well-being, regardless of the cost or our response. And sometimes I think that we just, um, we, our, our understanding, our knowledge of God's love is so superficial. At least sometimes I find my heart just not being moved by God's love. I remember when I was a boy, I was amazed at love. I was about... 14 years old, 12 or 14, and we used to drive the horse and buggy into Chambersburg, and there was a, a grocery store in there called Country Market. And it was sort of like in what we called Cardboard City. It was, it was like the lower end of town where there was a bunch of government housing. And they tended to sell food cheap there. And uh, I just remember one day, I came around the corner. I was with my mom and dad, and and. We came around the corner, and suddenly there was a man there that just, like, grabbed my eye. I don't know how many of you have ever seen um, paper towels are called brawny. Do you remember that? The younger generations wouldn't remember that. But you remember the guy on there? He looked like he was a logger. Looked almost like Paul Bunyan. You know, he had this perfect tan. He was big, just built. And here was a guy that fit that. I always looked at them paper towels like, what would it be? How nice it would be to look like that. And... It's just carnal, okay? I understand that. You don't have to tell me. I understand that now. But I, that's the way I thought as a, as a 12, 13, 14-year-old boy. It's like, man, if I could just look like that, I'd have the world by the tail. 
Well, here was this man, and he looked just like that. And he's standing there with a grocery cart. And I looked at him, and what was standing beside him just blew me away. Here was this girl, his wife, and she had, I don't know what she had. She looked like she would have polio or something. I mean, this, this side of her back was like humped way up like this, and this side of her face was like bone missing in her face, and it was like caved in. And the good side of her face was covered with this birthmark that started right here and just ran the whole way down her neck. She was hard to look at. And here was this guy who was a big smile on his face and they were walking along shopping. And I'm like, what was he thinking? He could have probably had almost any girl he wanted out there in the world and he chose that girl for his wife. I was shocked, absolutely shocked. And I wanted to ask him what he was thinking, but I knew better. And so I just like left it go. I've seen them together three times in, in, in my experience as a, as a young boy. And I never ceased to marvel at what I was seeing. The last time I seen them, they were crossing the parking lot, pushing the cart. And in the cart was their groceries and a baby basket with a baby in it. I never could understand or appreciate that until I seen my own ugliness. And then I thought, you know, that is a perfect picture of the church of Jesus Christ. She's not very pretty. In fact, she's quite deformed. But God set his love upon the church. It's his bride. He said, I'll take that one. I'm going to love her. I'm going to polish her with my love. I'm going to cleanse her with my, my truth, the word of my truth. She's going to be my beautiful bride. And he stopped at nothing in terms of expense. He just loves on her and loves on her and loves on her and loves on her. And sometimes I hear people say things about the church. I think, you know what? You're touching the king of kings bride with your words yeah, you are. And yeah, there might be some ugliness there, but your words aren't changing that. Your love will help change that, but your words aren't changing that. If, there's, if you're not standing in awe of the fact that you are that woman and that you have a bridegroom that set his love on you, your words will never help beautify that girl. The love of God is absolutely amazing. You're that girl, and you want to look in the mirror every morning and recognize that, and turn and go about your day and not forget what you've seen. We all have a lot of needs in our lives, and in spite of that, we are loved with an incredible love where God did not spare anything to redeem us to himself. Verse 5, giving all diligence, we need to be pouring our lives into it, giving all diligence. That means that we're working against the resistance. You don't build strength in the inner man. You don't build strength in your arms unless you're working against resistance. When I was a boy, you know, one of the things that fascinated me with these guys that, I don't ever heard of Charles Atlas or not. You know, I thought I wanted to be that brawny guy, you know. So when I was a boy, they had this program you could send for in the mail because nobody knew anything about internet back then. 
And you send for this, you pay like a couple dollars, and they send you something to tell you what to do, and then you send some more money to tell you what to do. But they would teach you how to build resistance, you know? You like work against yourself. And so I was working on dairy farm at that time, and I'd walk around going, like that. I thought, man, I'm going to get these big, strong arms here after a while. And you know, it actually helps. You can build resistance against yourself. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about exercising yourself and diligence. You work that spiritual heart of yours. You make your heart, your passions, you turn your passions towards Jesus. Your passions will follow where you put energy. Your passions will follow where you put money. You can steer your heart. So if you put money in a foreign mission, what's going to happen? You're going to care about what's happening there. You put your money in Wall Street, you're going to care about what the stocks are doing. Is that right? I don't know. I've never done that. But I tell, I tell you from what I know is that if you put your heart there, you put your money there, your heart's going to go there. That's what Jesus said. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to go. And if you make the kingdom of God, you make the body of Christ, you make the Lord Jesus Christ a passion of your life, you say, how do I do that? You give all diligence. You put your energies, you put your prayers, you put your, your passions, invest it into the body of Christ. And your heart will go there. You start spending time with brothers. You start spending time building up and edifying those within the body of Christ. And you will come to love the church. Add, 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 add to your faith. We're in verse 5. And we need to move along fast, quickly here. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. What's that next word? Someone tell me. Loud and clear. Virtue, everyone together. Virtue, and virtue is what? Moral excellence, everyone together. Moral excellence. And you can come up with some other words for that, I'm sure. But moral excellence, the strength within, the inner man being strong in its passion for Jesus. The strength of the inner man being strong in its commitment to bear the cross of Christ. The inner man being absolutely committed to following in the footsteps of Jesus and to having the spirit of Christ dominate his thoughts, his reactions, his responses in every circumstance. Virtue. We need virtue in our hearts. Moral excellence. And what I want to point out here is that we are constantly called. Peter has this lined up. What he's saying is, is okay, look, here. You have to give yourself to this. You have to do it diligently. And, and you have to add to your faith, okay? So you have to have a growing faith. And then you add to that faith virtue. And then he goes right down through the list. And we don't have time for the rest of it here tonight. I can tell you that right now. But let me just simply uh, point a few things out to you yet. And that is that Peter is saying that if you don't have faith, you can't add that virtue. You get what I'm saying? You have to have faith. Your faith has to be growing. And your faith doesn't have to be all that big. It has to be, how big does it have to be for God to honor it? Someone tell me. Compared to what? Thank you, brother. It only has to be as big as a mustard seed. And you know what? If I had a mustard seed right here, you couldn't see it. That's how small it is. But if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, God, Jesus said, we will honor that. Yeah, we will. We're going to come and move on your behalf. We're going to start moving mountains out of the road. We're going to start drawing you close to us. We're going to start building in your knowledge of, of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to be an intelligent person. You just have to have faith. And it can start very small. And God honors faith. 
but you have to start working and building onto that and you build onto that virtue, that inner strength, that moral excellence within our lives. You know, there's, there's some things in Scripture that, that bother me. They really bother me. One of them is found in Matthew 25. Toward the end of Matthew 25, you have Jesus saying this, that at the end of, of time there's going to be this, this judgment. And he's going to gather in, and I think, if I understand it correctly, at this point, it's all professing Christians are going to be gathered into him. And he's going to sit there as a shepherd who divides his sheep from his goats. And he's going to divide that crowd, and he's going to say to them, you know what, I was sick, you didn't come see me. I was in prison, you didn't come visit me. I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. I was naked, and you didn't close me. And they're going to say, What? What do you mean? What are you talking about? We taught Sunday school. We were on the mission field. What are you talking about? We were there. We did it. And he's going to say, uh, this is a hard part. He's going to say, I, I never knew you. I never knew you. The people who sat in church, people who went on the mission field, people who taught Sunday school, I never knew you uh, depart into everlasting punishment. That's what he's going to say to those on his left-hand side. That's hard. That is really hard. And you wonder what was missing. And then we have the parable Jesus tells about the ten virgins. And you have five who are wise and you have five who are foolish. What was it that was missing in the five foolish virgins? Why were there lamps without oil? What was the oil representative of? I think it was representative of the virtue that is the fruit of following God's spirit, of having God's spirit rule and reign in your life, directing your passions, your heart towards God. I think they had the profession. They were lacking the virtue. They didn't love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind. They were just happy to be going to heaven when they died. And that bothers me. It bothers me because I do not want my heart to grow cold. I don't want my passion for Jesus to grow cold. I want to do everything within my strength, all that I'm responsible to do to respond to the great gift of God through Jesus Christ and to follow him with virtue, that inner strength, that inner commitment that will not stop following Jesus, that will not lay down my cross, that will not take and follow my own ideology and make excuses for myself that relieves me from my moral obligation to love those who harm me or who mistreat me. What is virtue? What is virtue? How is your virtue? How is your moral excellence? Is there more than enough just to sustain you? Is there enough that people that bump into you in life and spill your coffee, so to speak, experience virtue coming from you, the healing of Jesus Christ? I think God wants us to know and he has made it that we can know what our virtue meter is reading. What is our level of love for the Lord Jesus Christ? I think we can know that. If, you know, sometimes, and I say this to young people, I have friends in churches where they send their young people off to Bible school, and they come back um, <clears throat> bringing the latest fat with them from Bible school. Well, that's right where your virtue meter is, okay? Uh, peer pressure. If wherever, whatever level you succumb to peer pressure, that's where your virtue meter is reading. And that's it. 
It's no better than where you succumb to the pressures of the world around you. Think about your thoughts. We talked about this the other night. Your thoughts indicate the patterns that you think, not the temptations that come to you, but the, pa- the thoughts that you actually embrace in your mind gives you a virtue reading of your heart. It's just the way it is. Uh, what does it take to ruffle your emotions to get you upset at somebody in the church? That's really where your virtue meter reads, right there. Yeah, that's right. Because Jesus said if your virtue meter reads red hot and somebody wrongs you, what are you going to do? You're going to love them. Why? Because you love Jesus. And you're going to move towards them, not away from them. You're going to move towards them. You're going to bless them. You're going to do good to them. You're going to heap coals of fire upon their head. You're going to bless them in any way that you can find to bless them. But you're going to move towards them, just like Jesus moved towards us when he carried that cross to Golgotha's Hill. Okay. I know we're over time again tonight. I'm sorry. Let me just close with this. There's a story that has inspired me for a long time. Uh, you can read it if you have the writings of Eusebius. You can read this uh, history story from history. Eusebius was a historian. I, I don't I can't give you an exact time frame, but I think he lived in the maybe mid to late 200s. Um, and he was a, a historian in the early church, also a bishop. At Alexandria, if I can recall it right, I'm not sure about that. You can double-check me on that. But Eusebius did a lot of writing, and he did a lot of... Uh, he, he contributed greatly in um, compiling the letters that were actually written by the apostles. But he shares a story about John, the apostle John. And I think in, in my heart, it says, okay, this helps me understand what I'm striving for in my life. I'm not there yet, brothers and sisters. Trust me, I'm not there yet. But this is what it means to me to be a partaker of the divine nature of God. And I want to grow and mature. Now, John, at this time, he would have been in his 80s. This this happened, according to Eusebius, this happened after he was uh, brought back from his exile on the Isle of Patmos where where the revelation of Jesus Christ was given to him by God. But he was... uh, he was a bishop at Ephesus, which we know from other history sources. And after his uh, time on the Isle of Patmos, he returns back to Ephesus. He was down at another church, and I can't remember right now which church it was. And he uh, was going about establishing elders in the church to lead the church forward. And he was at the one church, I think it was Sardis, but don't quote me on that unless you check it out yourself, where he had this young convert that he had brought to the Lord. And he knew that he was a promising young man with a brilliant mind and a heart to know God. And he, at a church service, he brings this young man up in front of the church and he commits him to the bishop of the church. And he says, I want you, before myself and Christ, to take charge of this young man's soul and to disciple it. And the, all the church is witness of, of this charge that I'm giving to you. And he leaves. And he goes on his way, and he comes back, and perhaps it's years later, I don't know for sure. But he comes back, and they're having a church meeting, and he says to the bishop, he says, where is that which I committed to you before Christ in the church? 
And the bishop's a bit startled. He's thinking, okay, did he give us money? Did he give us a loan? What, what, what's he talking about? And then John says, no, the soul of the brother that I committed to you. Oh, he says, oh, oh, that brother. Oh, he's dead. He's dead to the church. He's dead to Christ. In fact, he has joined a band of robbers out there in the mountain. And he has become their leader. And John, they said that the apostle John, he threw himself on the, on the ground. He tore his, his clothing. He smote himself on the head. They said he cried out with loud lamentation that this young soul would depart from the living God. And I wonder, how does it strike your heart when someone leaves the faith, when someone makes a wrong choice? But he wept. He said, I must talk to him. I must go find him. And they said, they'll kill you. He says, no, I must. And they brought him a horse. They told him about where this hideout was full of robbers. And according to Eusebius, John gets on that horse, and he's 80-something years old at this point. He rides into the mountain with one desire, and that's to see this man restored to Christ and to the church. And read the reading yourself. It's not real hard to find. But what happened was he's riding down toward this hideout, and he, as he approaches the hideout, he's, he's pulled from his horse by, by guards, and they realize he's unarmed. And so they, uh, they restrain him, and he says, Look, uh, I just want to talk to the leader. I don't mind if you kill me. I just want to talk to the leader before you do that. And they're taking him back his path to the hideout, and they, the leader sees him coming, and he's armed. He sees him coming, and he recognizes him, and he turns to run. And John yells after him. He says, my son, my son, there's yet hope for life. It's me, it's your father. Don't run from me. He says, I have to give an account to God for your soul. Don't run from me, my son. And he stops. He turns around. And he throws his weapons on the ground. And he comes to John, and they embrace, and he falls on the ground. And Eusebius says it this way. He said he wept. And he wept until he had rebaptized himself with his own tears. And the Apostle John comforted him. He said, My son, you can find forgiveness from Christ for the sins that you've committed. I assure you that you can find forgiveness if you turn from your sins. And he leads him back to the church. And, and you need to read it. It says it, and I can't remember the entire story, but you see, it says that. John stayed with that young man and that he prayed with that young man. He fasted with that young man. He helped that young man take all his fears that would come to his mind, fears that maybe he had sinned too deeply and there was no repentance for him. He helped him to take all those thoughts captive with the truth that is in Christ. And he stayed with him until he was strong in faith. And then he recommitted him to the church, to disciple, and to receive back into the fellowship of the church before he went on his way. I said, there's an example of a man who so walked with Christ through the years that he gave a true picture of the heart of God. And I know these are things that we grow in, but we have to be intentional about our growth in these things. We have to care deeply about the body of Christ. It's not about denomination. God doesn't see denomination names. He has a bride. And while she may be ugly... He loves her deeply. And one day she's going to be perfect. 
That birthmark's going to be gone. That bone's going to be restructured. There's no longer going to be a hump in her back. It's going to be because of the work of his spirit and of his grace. And we're privileged to be partakers of his divine nature and to be partakers of the work that he's doing in this our day. And we need to understand deeply in our hearts that if we're going to be men of strength, women of strength, women of virtue, men of virtue, it's a work of God's spirit that strengthens the inner man to love the way we have been loved. In fact, John says, if you want to know, you want to know where your love meter reads with God, just look at how you feel towards those around you. You can say whatever you want about how much you love God, but your meter reads according to how you love your brothers and your sisters, and that is the accurate reading. He says, don't kid yourself. That's where it's at. I just want to bless you, brothers and you sisters, for your faith. Thank you for your patience with me. Been a number of times here that we have not closed in time, and I'm sorry about that. I just want to, um, I'd like to have a prayer for you before you go. Let's just bow our hearts, bow our heads. Father, if you heard only hope, times we lose sight of your great grace to us, we're sorry. I just pray that as we, we stand here, we sit here tonight, that each one of us might come to a deep rest in your love for us. We might purpose with heart and soul to love you with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our might, with all of our mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We thank you so much for loving us. Ugly, undone, wretched. You set your love upon us and you spare nothing to manifest that love. I just pray for each brother and for each sister, for each young person here tonight, for each of the children that are here tonight. Dear Father, I commend these brothers and sisters into your hands and to the word of your grace which is able to build them up and to give them inheritance among them which are sanctified. Be glorified, Father, in this congregation. Honor them with your presence, with your wisdom, with your guidance. Bless them, Father, as they seek after you. Honor your Son by stamping his image on each and every heart. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.